Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and today we are continuing our list of things I used to believe. A little bit of a backstory on this, if you didn't listen to our first episode. Basically, I'm going through a list of some beliefs that I used to have that I don't have anymore. Some of these are just based on the changes of technology, of current trends in the music industry, what music is popular, whatever it may be. And some of them were just incorrect things that I used to believe. But I'm going to go down some of the things that I have changed my opinion on over the years. And you might learn some things from this list. So let's go for it. All right, we're going to start with number 16, which is LCR panning. Now, if you're not familiar with LCR, it's basically the idea of only using three pan spots, hard left, hard right, and center. Now, to some degree, I still pan a lot of things hard left, hard right, and center, but I have come to recognize there are situations where hard panning is not the answer. Uh, For a long time, I was doing LCR, and then I switched to like an LCR plus 50-50, where I was using hard left, hard right, and center, plus in certain situations for a couple of things like toms, 50 left and 50 right. And for the most part, that is what I stick to, even to this day. I still stick to mostly five pan spots, and I won't necessarily get into the reasons why, but... Today, I wanted to just say that I have come to realize certain situations require you to pan lightly, like 10 left or 10 right. Certain situations sound good when you do subtle changes from, say, 80 left and right to 100. It's a subtle width change from maybe the verse to the chorus. So I don't want to, you know, pinhole myself into only using those spots for some sort of arbitrary, it sounds better reason when sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it is cool to have subtle changes. I think one of the things that has shifted uh, in my mind in this regard is that over the years, we have less and less dynamic headroom to play with. You know, mixes are getting done louder and masters are getting louder, and people don't want as much dynamic shifts in their music. I'm not saying I'm happy about that. In fact, I'm not. But my point is we have to find other ways to create dynamics other than just volume. We can't just make things get louder and quieter. We have to play with other facets of dynamics, such as density, right? Like if you take out the bass guitar in a verse, it suddenly sounds way more empty. The bass can take up a ton of room. That's a dynamic shift. When the bass comes back in, it's like, whoa, this, you know, was a big change. Even if overall the volume didn't change that much. Density is a big one. I also love playing with frequency as a dynamic shift. You know, things being a little bit darker in the verses and a little brighter in the choruses. And I love playing with width as a dynamic shift. Things being a little narrower in the verses and wider in the choruses. So all of those things have led me to say, you know what? Like, I'm trying to get dynamics however I can. I'm trying to get separation. I'm trying to get, you know, interesting mixes. And if that requires me to pan an acoustic guitar 10 left or a backing vocal pair 80 left and right, then I'm going to do it, you know? So I still do stick to hard left, hard right, and center with the 50-50 spots primarily, but there are things that I will soft pan, so to speak. And I just don't take as much of a hard stance on it anymore. I just don't think it's necessary to take such a hard stance when I can't really back it up with any sort of good reason. Number 17, a clean guitar amp with pedals can sound like anything you want. Now, this one is a tough one to talk about because... 
to some degree, yes, it is true, but there are limits to what can be done. Most of the time, guitar players will use some sort of amp for their pedal rig that has a good amount of headroom. You know, Fender Twin is really popular. Fender Deluxe Reverb is really popular. And they'll get drive sounds from their pedals. But I've got a friend who has a studio, and uh, he's not really a guitar player, but he's like, well, I don't want to have to buy 10 different guitar amps for my studio just to get all these sounds. Like, can I just get, like, one really good amp and use pedals to get everything I need? And that kind of inspired this answer because I used to think the same thing. Like, oh, if you've got a good Fender and use a bunch of pedals, you can get tons of different sounds. And that's true and it's not true. Like you can get a lot of different sounds, but there are limits to what can be done. And I'll give you an example. So in a guitar amp, most guitar amps have two primary sections, the preamp section and the power amp section. The preamp section is where a lot of the tonal character of that amp is shaped. And the power amp section is mostly for the function of making your output loud. Uh, and that you know, is a general thing, but I'm not going to get way into that. And for a lot of amps, a lot of the tone is generated in the preamp section, such as uh, Soldano, right? A lot of that gain and that sound is generated in the preamp section. And the power amp section is important, but not as important as the preamp section versus something like a Vox AC30, which uses EL84 power tubes. And those are tiny little tubes that contribute a lot to the sound of that amp. They saturate and distort and compress much more than, say, 5881s or 6L6s or something like that. In a lot of amps, the power section is basically just used for clean, loud amplification, and they contribute to the tone, but the preamp is ultimately more important. So if you're running pedals into a clean amp, essentially what you're doing is adding more stages to your preamp, right? Like the pedal is your preamp, so to speak. And it's shaping the tone in the preamp. But for amps that are designed where the power section has a huge influence on the tone, you can't really do that with a pedal because you're just affecting the input side as a preamp. Now, in theory, you could put something in the effects loop and try to get something there, but it's still not the same. So the whole point of this is to say, like many guitar players, myself included, used to think that, you know, if you had a Fender Twin and a ton of pedals, you could get any guitar sound out there. And I, could, I would argue you can get a ton of great sounds with that. But there are certain sounds you will probably have a hard time emulating. A Vox AC30 is probably one of them. Little tiny combo amps like a Fender Champ. That's really hard to emulate with a pedal. Some really high gain or really high wattage marshals where the power amp sag is a part of the sound. That can be really hard to emulate with a pedal. The other thing is, yes, you might have an amp that can get a lot of sounds, but do you have a lot of cabinets? Okay, because like, for example, a Marshall kind of doesn't sound right to me, at least, unless it's running through a 412 either a low wattage 412 with greenbacks or a more high wattage one with creambacks or vintage 30s or something. That's part of the sound. If all you have is this Fender Twin with an open back 212, that's kind of the only sound you get. And the cabinet can make a huge difference to the sound of the amp. So 
Yeah, if you had a, a Fender Twin and a bunch of pedals, you can get a lot of places. If you had a bunch of cabinets or if you use something like IRs or the Universal Audio Aux, that would expand your capabilities a lot because now you could take that amp but run it through lots of different cabinet types. But you're still going to have limits. So I just want to get the point across that don't expect to be able to really nail every possible tone on the planet with one amp and a bunch of pedals. If we were able to do that, then we would be doing it. Now you can get close. You can get great tones out of pedals these days. Pedals have gotten so much better over the, over the years. And if you have a great platform amp, like a Fender Deluxe Reverb or a Bassman or a, a Fender Twin or something like that, like you can get a ton of great sounds. But just be aware, you may need to invest in other types of amps in the future. I would probably say, you know, the three big ones, of course, are Marshalls, Fenders, and Voxes. And those all have very different sounds. But if I could add a fourth in there, it would probably be a lower wattage Fender, uh, more like something 6v6 based or like a Supro or something that uses a lower wattage, you know, 10, 15 watts and, and below uh, because that sound, that saggy, you know, thing that comes from a low wattage amp is something that is really hard to emulate if you're using a 50 watt amp or something like that. So like a low wattage amp, you know, 15 watts or below, a 30 watt Vox AC30, a 40 or 50 watt Fender like Super or Bassman, Blackface Bassman or Twin, and then like a 50 or 100 watt Marshall. Like those to me are kind of like four very distinct tones versus like if you go through the line of blackface fenders they all sound pretty similar the main differences were the output section and the cabinets like that was the main difference between the different blackface fenders they didn't sound all that different from each other and the deluxes is kind of the same thing i mean there were differences but they weren't huge they weren't like the difference between a you know, a deluxe reverb and a Marshall Plexi. Those are huge differences. Anyway, so there's that one. While on the topic of guitar amps, uh, I wanted to talk about another one, which is that low wattage amps are better for recording. I used to think this because I've read it in books. And pretty quickly, in the first couple years of my career, I realized how much of a myth that is. For some reason, people tend to talk about low wattage amps are better in the studio or you'll hear players say like, oh, if I'm recording, I'll bring this little 15 watt. What's ironic about this is that these days, the only places you can play a 100 watt amp are in the studio. Like you can't take those to gigs anymore. You know what I mean? Sound guys are going to kill you if you bring a 100 watt Marshall to, an, to a gig. So it's funny because it makes more sense to use lower wattage amps while playing live because they're smaller, they're lighter weight, and you're going to mic them anyway. And early on in my career, I started working on metal records and rock records, and those guys play 100-watt PVs and Soldanos and Marshalls and, you know, like JCM 800s and JCM 900s, and they use 100-watt cabinets or higher. A lot of times they're using a 412 with vintage 30s, which is 240 watts, and that's the sound. Like, that is the sound of those amps. And you can't get those sounds by running a 15-watt Fender with pedals. You just can't. So I, I never liked that statement of, you know, lower wattage amps for, are better for recording. I really don't understand it. I, I really don't. I use 
amps of all kinds of wattages. I have little small 5-watt combos. I have 100-watt Marshall. I have a 100-watt Laney. I've used 5150s, which I think are 120 watts. I've used Deluxe Reverbs and Box AC30s and JTM45s and Basements and Trainwrecks. And you know what I mean? Like, I've used all of them, and they're all good for recording. I don't understand this idea of, like, you need to be quieter in the studio. If anything, that's the place where you can be louder because it's all isolated. And and so I think some people get on this train of thought of like, oh, well, if I'm in the room with it, like it's too loud or whatever. It's like most major studios, not that I'm a major studio, but I feel like I operate in a pretty efficient way, have some way to isolate amps. I do. I've got ISO cabinets built up in my attic. I have a booth that can I can run lines to and put an amp in there. I've got the Fryette power station, which I could go direct and take the output and run a cabinet simulator, or I could reamp it later. I mean, there's a lot of ways that I can get an amp silent or quiet out of the way if I need to. The whole idea of like, it needs to be quieter. I, I just don't know really where that comes from or why people continue to sort of perpetuate that myth. Truth be told, for me, I almost feel like it's more about companies trying to sell a cheaper amp to people that they don't want to lose business by like designing a 100-watt amp that nobody needs or can afford. And so they make a 15 or 20-watt version of it and people buy it and they market it like, oh, it's better for the studio because it's quieter or lower wattage. And I, I just don't get that. It's like, if anything, market that for for live players. But again, just like kind of the last uh, question about pedals in a clean amp, like the output of an amp is a big part of its tone, like how it interacts with the speaker cabinet. You know, a 100 watt Marshall sounds very different than an 18 watt Marshall. It's a very different sound. You know, a five watt champ sounds very different than a 120 watt PV. And it's not just because of the preamp section. A big part of it is that power section and how the interaction of the volume and the cabinet. Because if you run a really low wattage amp, like let's say you're running a, you know, Tweed Deluxe, 15, 10 watts, something, whatever that is, and you run that into a 412, you're barely going to be moving those speakers. Right. Because you're running into a, you know, multiple hundred watt cabinet with a little tiny 15 watt amp. But if you run that into a 15 watt speaker, I mean, you're going to be pushing that speaker pretty hard and it's going to start compressing and saturating and distorting and it's going to interact with that sound. And so there's this balancing act of preamp section of the amp what guitar and pedals you're pushing into it, the power amp section, how loud you're running it, and the cabinet that you're running it into. And finding those sweet spots is kind of what it's all about. Like, to me, that's why a Marshall turned up loud into a 412 sounds right. Because every piece of it is interacting. Every piece of it is all talking to each other, right? You're getting a little bit of distortion on the preamp. You're getting distortion on the power amp. You're getting a little distortion on the speakers. And you get this really dynamic thing happening where there's this electricity under your fingers. I can't even describe it. It's like, not like literally, but you know, it's, it's this interaction. It's almost like the same type of situation where you run multiple compressors in series where it can sound more natural because neither compressor is doing a ton of work. So when you're running a Marshall like that, for example, it's like you're getting some from the preamp, some from the power amp and some from the cabinet. 
You're not trying to get all the distortion from the preamp or all the distortion from the power amp or all the distortion from the cabinet uh, and the speakers. Like you're, you're getting a little bit from here, a little bit from here, and a little bit from here. And that to me produces better note definition, better punch, more natural sound. I'm kind of getting the weeds here, but my point is with all of this, I don't understand this myth. I got over it pretty quickly early on, like I said, when working with metal bands and stuff like that, that lower wattage amps aren't always better for recording. In fact, I use high wattage amps very often, 50 watt amps, 100 watt amps, 35 watt. I mean, I use those very often. I use them probably more than low wattage amps, but I use low wattage amps too. They're all good for recording. And if anything, you can't get away with high wattage amps live anymore. So as far as beliefs, I do not believe this anymore. Number 19, proximity effect is evil. So early on, I feel like when you learn about proximity effect, you hear about like, oh, you know, turn on the high pass filter if you're getting proximity effect. Don't stand too close to the microphone. You'll get proximity effect. Beware, beware, proximity effect. It's going to ruin your sound. Now, don't get me wrong, proximity effect can sound really bad on certain microphones with certain instruments, and it can ruin a sound, especially if the microphone is tube or if the microphone has a transformer that can saturate easily, because that proximity effect can actually end up distorting in the mic, and it's not something you can just, like, back down your pre and clean up. Like, it's actually distorting inside the microphone. So, yeah, proximity effect can be bad, but in many situations, it's the answer to get, getting a big, full, intimate vocal sound. I mean, it is the answer. Like, putting a female vocalist an inch or two away from a big condenser mic can get the most beautiful, in-your-face, huge vocal sound. Like, the Billie Eilish vocal sound, or like Sia, or some of these, like, that super in-your-face you know, sounds like they're right away, you know, an inch away from your ears. There's no avoiding that. That is the sound in so many situations to get that big upfront vocal sound. And yeah, you've got proximity effect and maybe you, you could put the mic in Omni, I suppose, to avoid it. But like that low end is not something to be feared. Proximity effect is not inherently bad. In fact, when microphone designers make mics, like they're well aware that proximity effect exists. And so they can compensate for it somewhat. For example, a lot of 251 style microphones and 67 style microphones, they don't have as much low end as say a U47. And so you can get really close to them and they don't sound like overly fat or overly boomy. They sound really balanced. Like certain microphones are designed to be used for close miking. These engineers who design these things are very aware of it, right? So like... Just my whole point is don't be afraid of proximity effect. It, it, it's not a problem. It's just something that happens, right? And if you need less of it, you can back off the singer from the mic or back off the mic from the cabinet or whatever it may be. But a little bit can go a long way. You know, just an inch or two back can reduce the low end just enough. But you can also EQ it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it, there's nothing wrong with using an EQ to compensate for proximity effect. Or you can switch to like a wider card pattern or an omni pattern to help reduce proximity effect as we talked about in our mic show figure eight often has a pretty huge proximity effect but again like it depends on the function right if i'm miking up a guitar amp with a 57 and a royer 121 and that royer has a bunch of proximity effect it's like well that's the that's what i want out of it like i'm using the royer 
to bring some low end fatness to my guitar sound. That's the main reason I'm using it. So the 57 is like, you know, 70% of the guitar sound and the Royer is blended in to get fatness and fullness. It's like, so in that case, proximity effect is the feature. Like that's what's helping me get the blend. So yeah, the whole point of this is don't be afraid of proximity effect. It's not evil. It's just something that happens and you can deal with it in a million ways. Number 20, compressor pedals will make your guitar sound squashed. So early on, when I first started getting into guitar, one of the first pedals I actually got was the Boss Compressor Sustainer. And I hated it because I was like, oh, this brings up all, all this noise and it makes my guitar sound super squishy and I don't like what it does. And so for a long time, I avoided compressor pedals. But maybe five or six years after that, I tried the Philosopher's Tone from Pigtronics, which has a wet dry blend. And it blew my mind. That was the first time I ever had tried a parallel compressor on guitar. I'd used it in the studio, but I'd never thought that that could be done in a pedal. And it turns out there are a handful of pedals out there on the market that have a wet-dry blend. And it kind of dawned on me that compressor pedals can be really subtle. It just depends on the compressor. Something like the Boss or a Dynacomp or the Ross compressor those are not subtle. They are very squishy and, you know, have a definitive color and a character to them that kind of reminds me of like chicken picking guitar. You know, it's cool, but it's an it's an effect at that point or for funk. Right. Like it's a noticeable amount of compression. But my favorite compressor pedal to this day, and it has been for, geez, a long time now, is the Wampler Ego Compressor. And it's a very clean, very transparent compressor pedal that has a wet-dry blend, and a lot of times I'm using it essentially just as a sustain booster for single-coil guitars. I'm really only using it just lightly and early in the chain. It adds a little bit of sustain to a Tele or a Strat or something like that and helps kind of bolster the signal a little bit and fatten it up. But it because it's in parallel, it doesn't squish my transients like that typical like chicken-picking or funk guitar sound. And to this day, like, I love compressor pedals. I use them a lot. I love the Keeley Compressor Pro and the Compressor Plus. I love the Boss. I love the Dynacomp. I love the Wampler. I've got four or five other compressor pedals. The Cali 76 is an amazing compressor pedal. They're all great. And I have come to love compressor pedals. And I, I've been using compressor pedals probably pretty consistently for the last 10 years. But early on, they scared me off so much because I was like, oh gosh, that's terrible. But it's a, it's a very different thing. Again, it comes down to the function of what you're trying to get out of it. If you're trying to get funk guitar or chicken picking or something like a very obvious compression effect, then sure, buy a Dynacomp, buy a Boss compressor. But if you want it for sustain or for some thickness to your single coils, Try the Wampler. It might change your mind on compression. Number 21, high dollar mic cables make a big difference. So this is a little bit of an embarrassing story. I think I've told it before, but um, I once fell prey to the snake oil of silver cables. So if you look up on Google, is silver a better conductor than copper? Essentially, the answer you get is yes, because Chemically speaking, 
Uh, when it comes down to the straight molecular side of it, yes, silver is a better conductor than copper. But that doesn't necessarily mean that silver cables are going to sound better than copper cables or that they'll sound any different at all. I uh, have a couple of cables that I bought from a company, I will leave unnamed, that use silver wire. And those cables cost me over $2,000, and I only have two of them. So that can give you a rough idea of how much it is per cable. They are very expensive, and I got convinced at some point that, oh, one of my heroes uses these, and he says it makes a huge difference. So I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to get a better sound, right? Well, uh, I almost never use them, and they don't sound any different to me than regular copper cable. They just don't. I mean, and I've run sign sweeps. I've run distortion sweeps. I've run phase sweeps. I've run every sort of test I can run, and they basically measure identically to regular old Mogami cable. There are no better noise specs. There's no better transient response specs. They basically work identically to other cables. And if you think about it, the only way really for it to be a pure like representation would be if the entire signal path was done in silver cable. Because as soon as you go into a patch bay or you go into any other piece of gear that uses copper cabling, which is what most of them use, it kind of renders it moot, right? And so that also makes it hard to disprove, and it also makes it easy for these companies to kind of sell you on the snake oil because they can be like, oh, well, you know, you should be using our preamp also, which is wired with all silver wire and silver solder and silver this and this and this. And long story short, most cables from Mogami or Lake or Canary or any of these like well-known high quality brands, like they're great and they work just fine. You do not have to spend a bunch of money on fancy silver cables or this and that to make an improvement. It will not make any big difference. Like it might make a difference of some kind, but the difference is so slight. Moving the microphone an inch is a bigger difference, right? Like using a different mic preamp is a bigger difference. Using, I mean, putting up more treatment in your room is going to make a bigger difference, right? It's such a non-issue in the long run. Like, do not get sucked in to the whole like hi-fi movement. There's so much snake oil in that side of things, like buying $800 power cables and all this. I mean, like, yeah, you do need good cabling, like good Mogami cables or Canary cables. That's important. They'll get you better noise performance and better sound quality with less capacitance. You won't lose any high frequency clarity. That's important. But like, don't waste your money on super expensive hi-fi cables. It's just not worth it. Number 22, mixing is where the real magic happens. Now, I'm going to strike a nerve a little bit with this one, and this is coming from a guy who's written a book about mixing. But early in my career, I thought the mixers were the heroes, right? Like, that's who gets the recognition. That's who gets their own signature plugins. That's who has tutorials online. Those are the real heroes that make songs what they are. And we've got Mix with the Masters, and we've got Pure Mix, and we've got all of this. And the longer I have done this, the more I realize that it's just an absolute farce. Like, it, it's ridiculous to me, and I feel like there's some sort of conspiracy going on. <laughs> because, like, 
I had a Mix with the Masters subscription, right? And the biggest thing I learned from the Mix with the Masters subscription, which is great, by the way, and I actually do recommend it, but the biggest thing I learned was that these big-name mixers, as talented as they are, are getting tracks that sound amazing. The raw tracks that these guys and girls get to mix are unbelievably good. Like, they sound basically mixed when they get them. And what they're doing to them is mostly pretty standard stuff that you and I do. And that was kind of a a humbling thing to realize when I opened up those videos on Mix with the Masters. I was like, so he's compressing his drum bus and compressing his master bus and adding a little bit of this and that to the snare, to the vocal. Like, there's no magic here. There's no studio trickery going on. They're just mixing. They're doing the same things that we do. But the biggest differences, in my opinion, number one, is that the tracks they're getting are incredible. They're well-written, they're well-arranged, and they're really well-recorded. I always talk about the source is king, so that's, that's king, right? But the other reason is that they have 30 years of experience under their belt, and they know what they're listening for. So if the source is king, I would say, like, experience is queen, right? Like, if you have those two things, a great source and a lot of experience, you can get an amazing sounding record. And some of these like mix with the masters tutorials where they're mixing a song start to finish are like two hours long. And sometimes I spend way longer on that on mixes, you know, and sometimes I spend, you know, a pretty short time, but other times I might be mixing a song for six hours or seven hours or something. And when you first start, it seems like it can take days to do a mix. So it's really frustrating to me. Like, I've had this conversation with many audio guys. Like, where's record with the masters, you know? I want that. Like, I want to know how these people get these amazing tones and how they craft a production. Because in theory, if things are recorded as they're supposed to be, you know, in air quotes there, mixing doesn't necessarily have to exist, you know? Like, why does mixing exist? Something happened. There was a shift that happened in the 80s and 90s where the mixers became the heroes. And don't get me wrong. I I do think that these mixers are incredibly talented. They have great ears. They can really elevate a production to sounding great. But they're not doing this like voodoo art that turns bad tracks into good tracks. That's just not what they're doing. They're getting paid a lot of money to take amazing tracks and make them even more amazing. Whereas a lot of people that are listening to this show are trying to make really mediocre tracks compete with that. And the real answer, again, like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, rub, rub people the wrong way a little bit with this, but the real answer is how can we get better at getting better sources, better mic technique, better microphones, better rooms, and better understanding of music and dynamics and arrangement to record stuff that sounds as close to finished as possible as early as possible. That's the real question. Because when we do that, mixing is fun. It's quick. You don't get bogged down. Things make sense. Compression and EQ work as, you know, creative tools to shape things and blend them together. You're not using this stuff to just like fix it and make it sound passable. You're just using it to blend things together and and create space and depth and excitement. That's what mixing should be, in my opinion. 
mixing should be an exercise in art. You're performing the mix. You're, you're adding excitement and finding places to add energy and dynamics and blend and separation. That's what mixing is. But the real sounds, like the sounds themselves, the actual like good quality of this or that, that's all about producing recording engineering. That's all about that. So I challenge all of you out there to focus more on your recording and don't think that like the mix is where the real magic happens because, uh, you know, after 13 years of doing this, I can tell you it's not. Number 23, engineers can't possibly be doing XYZ technique. So there were times when I would think like, man, there's some gaps in my knowledge or how do these guys get that snare sound and blah, blah, blah. And, you, and I would think to myself things like, man, well, he's not using snare samples or he's not using plugins for that or he must be using an analog console or he must be using tape or he must be using this or that or, or she must be using this kind of microphone and I don't have that so I can't get a good sound. As you get older, you realize, and you've been doing it longer, you realize that good engineers and producers use all kinds of stuff. They use wacky techniques. They use cheap gear and expensive gear. They use guitar pedals on drums if they want. The whole thing is your brain will make up this like, well, I'm inadequate because I don't have this or I don't do this or that. And then you'll see an engineer do something and you're like, oh my gosh, I never thought to do that. Why haven't I been doing that? So my whole point in bringing this one up is just to say that good creative audio engineers look for solutions to problems. And it doesn't really matter if it comes from a wacky solution or a really simple solution, a cheap piece of gear, or an expensive piece of gear. The whole thing is they're looking for the end result. They're hearing it in their mind and trying to get there with whatever tools and techniques are necessary. And so you might think like, oh, my favorite mixer, that can't be drum samples. And then you watch a video of that person mixing, and they're blending in five different snare samples to get that snare sound. And to some degree, it might hurt you, and you might think like, man, I thought they were you know, getting that from a live snare. But ultimately, it's like, who cares? I mean, they're getting a great sound. They're, they're serving the song. Who cares how they get there? I've had this happen multiple times in my career where I've thought, oh, people aren't doing that. That's so much work. Why would big name engineers have to struggle with that? Like, I'm having to do that because these, you know, my clients aren't as good or they're not as talented or, you know, my recording is not as good or I'm not as talented. And then you'll watch these tutorial videos, um, whether it's on YouTube or on Mix with the Masters or whatever it may be, and you'll realize, oh, they have to do that too. I'm not the only one. Like, I'm not crazy. I, and that feels really good to be kind of, you know, to verify your own experience. Um, but my whole point is do whatever it takes to get the sound that you're after and, and focus on hearing that sound in your mind and trying to achieve that sound. And don't worry about the gear. Don't worry about, uh, you know, if, is it expensive? Is it is it what the pros are using or whatever? Like, the better you understand hearing and what to listen for, the better you can understand what pieces of gear get you there. And yeah, sometimes the only way to get a certain sound is with an expensive piece of gear, if we're being honest. Um, but other times you can come really, really close with much cheaper pieces of gear. And uh, it's not all about the, the, the gear. I'm, I'm also talking about techniques. Like there are things that you might do that you might think, 
man, if I was better, I wouldn't have to do this. Or if I was, if the band was better, then I wouldn't have to do all this work. But big name engineers do it too. So you're not the only one. Don't feel alone in this, in this process. We all do whatever it takes to get the sound we need. Number 24, stereo miking is always better than mono miking. So early on, I was recording a lot of acoustic guitar. I was writing songs, and that was kind of the main reason I started getting into recording, is to record my own songs. And I thought stereo miking acoustic guitar sounded incredible. And I got on this sort of deep dive into the world of stereo miking techniques, you know, XY and ORTF and all this, and you start realizing that there are certain engineers, really successful engineers who have worked on massive records who always talk about like stereo miking, that's the way to go. And then you read in books and they show all these examples of stereo miking techniques and all this. And then years go by and you kind of realize not everything needs to be miked in stereo. In fact, many times a single mic on something is the way to go. One of my favorite mic techniques on acoustic guitar is mid-side because it's kind of an in-between. It's wider than mono, but it's not quite stereo. Stereo miking is cool, but to be honest, I don't really use stereo miking that much. I use it on overheads, and I use it for room mics, but I don't really do a bunch of stereo miking otherwise because sometimes when you're placing stereo microphones on something you are positioning the listener's ears. So, like, if you're miking up a piano, conventional wisdom is to do a stereo pair. And yeah, in a lot of situations, that sounds the best. But in other situations, it's like you're taking up so much room in the track by doing stereo miking. And it just overtakes the sound of the whole mix. It sounds bigger than the drums because you've placed two microphones inside a piano, and that's what you're effectively... Um, showing to the listener. You're, you're placing their ears, you know, a foot away from the strings and then trying to get them to also hear drums in the room. You know what I mean? Like imagine a person walking into a rehearsal space to listen to a band and you say, hey, put your head inside of the piano and listen to us play. Like that's essentially what you're doing. And the piano takes up so much room when you mic it that way. So there are a couple of techniques you can do. You can mic the piano in mono. You can mic it in mid-side. Or you can mic it in like a coincident stereo te- technique like XY that takes up a little bit less stereo room. Or you could do mid-side. Or you could do a stereo technique that was a little farther spaced so you're not cramming the listener into the piano. Again, I, I, stereo techniques are great. I'm not saying that they're bad, but... Early on, I used to think that that was like, that's how you get real sounds. Like, that's how you get a real acoustic guitar sound is by miking it in stereo. And you need a stereo pair on acoustic and a stereo pair on piano and a stereo pair on overheads. And, you know, truth be told, like, a lot of times I I really like a mono overhead. You don't necessarily need the stereo. I like to think of stereo versus mono versus mid-side as how much, you know, of the stereo field do I want this sound to take up? You know, do I want it to be really bold and take up a bunch of room? Or do I want it to be very pointed and take up a, a very small amount of room? And I think people, I think miking with, with a single mic is a little harder because you have to balance the room sound versus the direct sound. You have to really make sure that mic is right. Whereas with a stereo pair, it kind of instantly sounds cool and impressive and all this. But it can also introduce phase issues and make things take up just way too much room. 
It might sound good panned hard left and right, but what if you want to pan it 50-50? Does it start to get phasey and strange then? You know, so think about it like this. A mono mic is really narrow and is kind of the, the most pointed of the of the set. You can do mid-side, which is kind of like a little bit wider than mono, but not quite stereo. Then you could do a coincident pair, which is wider than mid-side, and that's something like Blumline or XY, where the mic capsules are close. And then the widest would be something like a spaced pair, where the microphone capsules are far away from each other. So that's kind of like the scale of width that you need. So from a mono mic to mid-side to coincident pairs to spaced pairs. And you can get wider and wider with each of those. And you can use those to your advantage to place things in your mix and define how wide certain things are going to be. Number 25, dark, washy, quiet cymbals are better for recording. So this is a fairly recent one. I got into a kick for a long time where I really liked darker, large, washy cymbals. Stuff from Meinl or from Istanbul. And in the room, yes, they sound amazing. But in the mix, they present an issue. And that is a mismatch of brightness from the drums versus the cymbals. Now, let me back up. Why did I get into darker cymbals? One of the main reasons is that a ton of drummers hit their cymbals way too hard. Okay, that's a big problem. Even experienced drummers do it. They just hit them way too hard. And in the studio, that's really tough to balance. You get bleed everywhere. You get tons of cymbal in the room mics. I mean, it's just hard to deal with. It can get really harsh when you hit a cymbal too hard. They don't speak correctly. And you have a hard time balancing drums versus cymbals. So my thought was, let's just use quieter cymbals. And not only that, let's use darker cymbals. That way they won't be as harsh and they'll be quieter. And a drummer can hit hard on them and they'll work better. But, and, and that logic makes sense in a lot of situations. And I still do use dark and washy cymbals a lot of times. But it's not necessarily the answer all the time. Because, let's say you're using a dark set of hi-hats and a dark ride and dark crashes, but the snare that's right for the track is a little bit brighter. That presents a problem in the overheads because every time the drummer hits the snare, it's really bright. But when they hit the cymbals, they're really quiet and dark. And then if you need to bring up the cymbals, you're bringing up all this brightness on the drums. And that's problematic because now your drums sound harsh and your cymbals sound balanced. So I find the biggest key when it comes to selecting cymbals for the drum kit are to compare them to A, how hard the drummer is hitting, but also the brightness of the toms and the snare. So if you need the snare to be bright and the toms to be bright, you probably need brighter cymbals as well so that they sound balanced together and then tell the drummer to play them quieter. But at least they'll be balanced EQ-wise. If you need a darker snare, okay, it's actually kind of cool to use brighter cymbals and a darker snare because you get this big contrast and your overheads are like primarily cymbals and the drums are kind of quieter in there. Uh, and you can use that as more of a sort of separate, separated, isolated sound source and get more control. 
The problem with that sometimes comes in room mics and things like that where you'll get these really bright cymbals and kind of dark drums. And that can be an issue. But to me, it's, it's, it's a balancing act. Again, like so many of those things, you have to find that set of cymbals that has more brightness than the drums, but not too much more. And then it can work really well. Again, I still use dark washy cymbals sometimes, and I use really bright cymbals sometimes. But you have to kind of match them to each other, the cymbals and the snare and the drums. Like, you can't just pick dark washy cymbals for everything and expect it to work. There are situations where I love my 24-inch Meinl Big Apple dark ride, but in other times when a drummer is riding on it, it's just so quiet and you can't hear it in the overheads. And it's got a cool wash, but it just doesn't cut. So instead, I really like the Meinl Foundry Reserve ride, which is much brighter, much louder, but it still has a little bit of wash. It's not as heavy as like a ping ride or something like that, but it has a great stick definition and it can cut and be heard on overheads. Now, if I had a really bright snare, that symbol might not be enough, but I have found that I'm liking these sort of middle heavy weight symbols, which I used to not like. I used to only like these darker, washier symbols. But I'm finding I'm liking more in that sort of middle weight where they're bright enough to cut, but they're not pingy and they're not harsh and they're not like something that a metal drummer might play. There's something in that middle region. Uh, you also get better stick definition when the symbol is a little bit heavier most of the time. And that helps it cut through transient-wise on your overheads and room mics as well. Because when it's just super washy, you don't get a lot of attack, you don't get a lot of definition. It's just this blur of high-frequency stuff. And again, that's a belief I used to have, that, that the washier stuff was better, it stayed out of the way. And yeah, in certain situations it is, but I, I love the brighter symbols and the more medium-weight symbols as well. They all have their place. Number 26, lighting, candles, and studio vibe doesn't really matter. I used to think this for years, and I think it's just something where, like, I'm not personally that affected by lighting or mood in the room or candles. Like, it doesn't necessarily have an effect on me. Um, like, if I'm sitting here working on something, I want to be able to see what I'm doing. And so early on when I had this studio, it was really bright in here. And I had a drummer friend tell me, you know, your studio kind of looks like a, kind of feels like a hospital in here, man. And I kind of, I got a, I took a, took a little offense to that. I was like, what do you mean? It's really cool in here. Like I got all this gear and you know, it's, it's really neat. And they're like, no, I just like the lighting. It feels really sterile. And I like did not understand it. It's kind of like with me in fashion. Like I don't understand high fashion. Like I, I don't understand why certain things look cool or are in or like I don't get that world at all like I wear t-shirts and jeans you know what I mean and, and I felt that way about like lighting and candles and and all this like I, I can you not make music in here like well why are you complaining about the lights right but I have come to learn over the years I, I ended up taking his advice to heart and buying a bunch of lamps and LED lights that can be controlled from an app and cool rugs and tried tried to make the vibe way cooler and nowadays i get a lot of compliments on it and people say like man it's so comfortable here i feel really feels really homey and cool and it doesn't really affect me but clients notice it and they're really affected by it and they if if the room feels awkward 
they won't feel inspired. They'll feel kind of like they're at a hospital. And so that's something I had to learn. I had to admit that like, man, that matters. And artists are really affected by it. Some of them more so than others, but you know, people want to feel comfortable and they want to feel like they're in a cool place. Like it's, it's intimate and cool and vibey. I had to learn that kind of the hard way. Now, thankfully that, you know, that drummer friend is just being honest with me and trying to help me. And, and I love that because that's what I try to do with people, right? I try to be blunt and honest and not feed them a bunch of like myths and misconceptions. I really try to give people good information and be blunt with them because there's so much BS in the music world. People patting each other on the back saying, oh, your music's amazing. Oh no, that mix is incredible. Like, oh, it's so good, blah, blah, blah. When in reality, what we need is good, hard criticism and we need to learn to take it. And in this instance, I... Looking back at my past self, I'm glad that I didn't get all weird about it and be like, ah, he's crazy. I actually took it to heart and I listened and invested. I spent a bunch of money on stuff that I didn't think mattered that much, but the results have been great. And clients consistently are like, man, the studio's got a lot of vibe. It's really cool. It feels comfortable. So yeah, it matters. And I can't necessarily explain why, or I can't necessarily even tell you that I... I <laughs> I believe that it matters for me because for me, I could kind of work anywhere, but I can tell you, I believe it matters a lot for my clients. Now, this one might go in the face of some of the things I've already said, but I used to believe that if you're really good at your job, you can make anything sound amazing. And it's really just not true. <laughs> it's just not like... You'll read on forums, people will say a statement, something like, oh, big name engineer XYZ could take a SM57 and a Behringer interface and make a platinum record. And like, I call BS on that. I just do. Like, there's a reason those engineers don't do that. Because the gear does matter. Now, does it matter as much as good performances, good sources, um, you know, good songwriting? No. You could totally make a record with cheap gear, but they don't. You know what I mean? They don't do that. Like, we're always trying to get the best sound we possibly can get. And that is a lot easier, a lot more fun, and a lot less work when running through great gear. Great microphones, great preamps, compressors, EQs. I mean, to me, that's kind of like saying something like, oh, a real carpenter could build a home with a rock and a stick. And it's like, well, maybe, but they don't do that. They use good tools for a reason because it gets the job done better, faster, more efficiently. They're more comfortable. Like everything is better when the carpenter is using good, high quality tools. It just seems like one of those weird statements that people make to try to feel better about their less than stellar setup. Yes, these pros do have amazing ears. And yes, I, I, I still hold that their experience is one of the biggest parts of why they sound as good as they do. Um, like I talked about a little bit earlier, like the way that they hear things, that's why they're good at their job because they get tracks in and they say, I know how to make this better. But I really think there we should be honest and say like, if you've got a mediocre sounding drum set in a mediocre sounding room, and mediocre microphones and stock preamps on your interface, we shouldn't be telling young kids, like, you should be able to make a platinum record with that. Because it's not 
really true. I mean, you might be able to. You might be able to make a great sounding record. You might be able to make an interesting sounding record, but it wouldn't necessarily be that much fun. And there's no guarantees. I mean, there's no guarantees with nice gear either. But my whole point in saying this is like, we need to be honest that gear makes a difference. Like, I, I, I don't like that whole idea that, you know, you can use the cheapest gear or whatever and make an amazing sounding record. Because again, amazing sounding is subjective. What I think sounds like good, acceptable drum sounds can't be done on cheapo gear with crappy rooms and crappy drum sets. What I think is my gold standard of getting a great drum sound requires really great drummer, really great drums, and a great room mic'd up well. That's just how I feel about it. And again, you can get interesting drum sounds with lo-fi equipment, but can you get what I consider to be like, like I said, like gold standard drum sounds? No, you can't. Same thing goes for anything, guitar amps or pedals or guitars or, or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter if you've got a $10,000 microphone or a $20,000 microphone or a $100 microphone. If your singer is not good, then you're probably not going to get a great vocal sound, right? And so that whole idea bleeds over into our clientele as well. Because when early on, when you're starting out, your clients are often lower budget, not as experienced, just like you, and you don't have great gear, and they're also not that great. So, like, very seldom does, I mean, probably never, does a young engineer start out with no equipment and get a call from Lady Gaga to make a record, right? It just doesn't really happen. You have to learn and get better, know how to use the equipment, and part of the reason people call you to get to to work with you, part of it is because of your equipment. Like, it just is. I, I gotta admit, like, people call me and they see I have a bunch of gear, they, I have a bunch of instruments and amps and microphones, and even if it doesn't make as big of a difference as maybe they think it does, it still does make a difference, and they perceive it as, oh, he has good gear, therefore he will get us a good sound. So, yeah, I, I don't want to ramble too much about this one, but my whole point is, like, Go easy on yourself. Like if you're using cheap gear and you're like, why can't I get a pro sound? If I was really good, I'd be able to get it. Like it's a lot of moving parts in the chain here. Like from the source all the way to the converters, like you got to have good equipment and you got to have good rooms and good instruments and good sources and all this. Like, and it, it, the a better way to look at this is the whole like good rule, right? Like if you have a good player and a good instrument and a good room with a good microphone and a good preamp and a good converter, you can get a good sound. That makes more sense than big name guy XYZ could take cheap gear and make a platinum record. I just think that's a myth now. I know I'm picking on the big name guys today, but here's another one. Number 28, the pros and the big name engineers are where they are because they're really that good. I have had the opportunity to talk to a few name mixers over the years, and some of them really are that good. Some of them are super talented. They have amazing ears. They really know what they're doing, and they really know how to take a mix from point A to point B. Others that I have talked to don't necessarily know that much, and some of them have Grammys and at least Grammy nominations, and... It's surprising how little they really know. And I'm like, are these people even that good or are they just lucky? 
And again, tying back into um, my talking about Mix with the Masters, like some of the tracks that these mixers get are recorded so well, they don't necessarily have to do a lot. And so I do think there are some mixers out there who get praised. I won't name any names, but they get praised as being like these amazing mixers. And really, they just have positioned themselves to know the right people and work with tracks that sound amazing and essentially refuse projects that don't already sound amazing to begin with. And that's kind of like, well, sure, if that's what you want to do. But to claim that these people are masters or heroes for the mix world is kind of, I don't know, that's stepping a little bit too far over the line, in my opinion. Another thing I wanted to talk about in this regard is like the music industry has changed so much. Like when you listen to the pros talk about how they came up and how they got their name and how they started working on these records, it, it's so different than today, right? Like you listen to stories about, oh, I was an intern at a studio and then uh, all the guys went off to go to a bar and they said, hey, we've got this other client coming in. Uh, you should record them and, you know, we'll throw you a little bit of cash. And that turned out to be Red Hot Chili Peppers or whoever. Like, those stories don't really happen that much anymore where you're just, like, thrown into this studio world and you work your way up the ladder and you're cleaning toilets and washing windows. And eventually they're like, here, kid, record this side project band and it's Billie Eilish or whatever. Like, that just doesn't really happen that much anymore. Studios are trying to stay afloat. Artists don't have the money they used to. Big studios don't necessarily have as many, like, interns or assistants as they used to. Some of them do. Some of them have great programs for that and stuff. But it just it's just a different world now. And some of these big-name people, mixers and producers and engineers today, got their start by working on bands in a time where if you were in a studio recording— it was probably because you were signed to a label. Like, there wasn't really this huge project studio thing. It was like you had recording studios that were large and good and classic studios, and the only people who could afford to record there were artists on labels. And there wasn't really any reason... Like, if you weren't on a label, you were basically nobody. You know what I mean? Like, you, there was no SoundCloud. There was no YouTube. There was no real indie record scene. There was no indie band scene for decades. And so if you were at a studio, you were probably pretty legit. You know what I mean? Like you were on a label, you were picked because you were legit, you were picked because you were talented and and then the label was paying for it. You know, in the days of Fleetwood Mac, ACDC, stuff like this. Today, it's a very different environment. And so... Like back then, if you were an intern, there was a good chance that you'd be working with like top tier bands only and primarily you'd get to see these amazing players. And then, you know, if you'd worked there a long enough time, maybe they'd throw you the side project. Oh, you've got this little band called The Police. They want to come in and record. You know what I mean? Like that was the type of thing that was happening back then. Now, even if you do get an internship at a studio, a lot of the projects you're going to be working on the side projects for the smaller bands, the unsigned bands, like those bands, no, nobody knows who they are. You know what I mean? It's, it's a different record industry completely. So like, 
I think it's a little unfair for people to compare themselves to some of these other engineers. And they're like, oh, well, this guy had his first Grammy when he was 30 years old and he worked with Coldplay or he worked with Aretha Franklin or he worked with Kings of Leon or Foo Fighters. Name, you know, name any band or singer. And it's like, well, yeah, but it was a different industry in the 90s. It was a different industry in the 80s. You know, it was a different time. And I don't know what this looks like for the future. I'm not saying I have an answer. But I'm just saying, don't be so hard on yourself um, because, like, I have learned that, like, the industry is completely different now than it was back then. And so I'm looking at uh, myself saying, like, man, am I ever going to be able to work with big name clients? Because I don't work with many. I work with very few signed signed artists these days. I have a couple of label uh, contacts and I have a couple of records under my belt for labels, but not many right? Like I mostly work with independent artists and some of them are successful, but not many of them are like, you know, I don't, I don't have any credits to my name for big international superstars, right? I've never worked with Lady Gaga or, you know what I mean? Like I don't have credits like that. So part of my brain says like, well, is that a goal I have? Do I want to work with big name artists like that? Or am I happy doing what I'm doing? And if I explore the third sort of thought experiment of like, all right, well, what would it take so that I could work with artists like that? Do I need to move somewhere else? Do I need to try to get my name out? And one thing that I have discovered through that process is, man, a lot of these people, a lot of these big name artists make records with people they know. And Again, again, this kind of ties back into the whole like mixing is where the real magic happens. Like a lot of records are recorded by engineers you've never heard of. And the only people who seem to get credit and recognition are the mixers. And it drives me nuts. Like so many great records have been recorded by engineers that I've never, I've never even heard of. And they don't get any recognition. And it's really frustrating so I guess my whole point in bringing this one up is like, don't be hard on yourself about your career. Like the industry is constantly changing. It's completely different now than it was when our heroes were our age. You know, Michael Brower or Jakir King or Sylvia Massey or any of these heroes that we have, we look back at their careers and when they were young, their only options really were working with label acts. You know what I mean? So like my whole point is don't be so hard on yourself about this. The idea that these engineers solely are are where they are because they're that good and these artists have selected them, you know, it's just not all the case. Now, I will say most of them are really good. <laughs> like if we're all being honest, like most of these big name engineers, big name mixers, big name producers, they are good. They're really good. But they also were fortunate to come up in a time in the industry that was a little bit more, uh, that had bigger opportunities from a younger age. Number 29, musicians have thought about their art more than you have, so you should trust them. Again, I'm, I'm feeling feisty today. I'm, I'm ruffling some feathers, but I have found the absolute biggest problem in my job, the number one frustration I have with my job is that artists don't know what they want. And that's kind of ironic to me because it's like they're creating it. How do they not know what they're trying to create? Like, 
obviously, like, there's experimentation involved and art is always fluid and things can change and music is super fluid, you know, like, things can change last minute in the studio. But, like, artists have this problem where they write a song and then they think, let's record it now. When they haven't gigged it, they haven't experimented with it, they haven't searched for vibes, they haven't searched for instrumentation, they just write it and go. And it's like, man, that's only half the process. That's maybe only a third of the process. Like, you write a song, but you also have to make sure the arrangement is really good. You also have to make sure the vibe of it is right. You have to make sure of all these things. And yes, like, you can hire a producer to help you find these things, but... I have had so many experiences where artists just have no idea what they want. They just are like, oh, just record us. This is what we sound like. And it's like, that's not how this works. Like, I can do that, but you're going to get a boring product. You just want me to set up mics and hit record? Like, that's not producing. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not really crafting a song. That's just capturing. Um, like, you might as well just capture a live show. You know what I mean? I'm trying to make something here. I'm trying to make something special. And in other situations, you have kind of an even more frustrating version of this, which is they think they're going to bring me their, you know, song they wrote a week ago and they just play their, you know, chords and generic parts. And I'm going to magically make it sound like, you know, Billboard's hot indie record of the year. Like it's going to be the trendiest, coolest, vibiest record out of nowhere, when in reality, they don't sound like that. You know what I mean? Like, they think that I am the arbiter of vibe and that I am ultimately responsible for taking their generic sounds on guitar or drums or whatever and turning them magically into vibe. And that's just not it. Like, they are a big part of the vibe. I would argue the biggest part, how they play, what they play, what instruments they play, what parts they play, how the singer sings the lyrics, how they emote and how they, uh, you know, get the lines across and how they rhyme and how breathy they are. And all of this stuff contributes a huge amount to, to like, to me, it's the equivalent of like, you know, I'm sure you, you have seen when uh, actor voice actors on a TV show or on a cartoon or something do a table read of the script. Like that to me is the equivalent of what they're doing. They're just doing a table read of their song and they expect me to be like, to pop out a finished episode of The Simpsons. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's not how this works. Like a lot of work has to go in from taking this script into actually turning it into a cartoon episode, right? There's a ton of work in between those two things. The table read is important for understanding the flow and the general outline and how it works. And But you actually have to craft it then. Like, you actually have to make it. And artists just don't think enough about that. They really don't. It's only the most experienced artists that I work with who are really, really picky about that stuff who really think about, this is what the snare should sound like. This is what the drum should sound like. I really want the guitar to have this vibe, and I want my vocal to sound like this, and I want the bass to have this kind of sound, and I want percussion, but not I'm not big on shakers. I like tambourines instead, and I really like organic-sounding records, and I really like uh, really dark-sounding reverbs. And 
like experienced artists that I work with think about that stuff. And even if they can't explain it to me in technical terms, they can still explain it to me in vibes and with references and in feelings. They can say like, I really want my vocal to sound like intimate and close and warm and big. That's still better than a vocalist coming in and saying like, I just want it to sound good. You know what I mean? Like that's nothing. That's, that's not helpful at all. It's like, I want it to sound good too, but how do you want it to sound? It's really baffling. And me and my engineer buddies, like, we laugh about it all the time. How vastly unprepared artists are when they come into the studio and how little they really think about their art. Now, obviously I'm generalizing here, but I, I would love to say that it's an exception, not the rule. But I mean, I, I've been doing this 13 years and it's overwhelming how many artists don't know what they want. I would argue at least 70%. At least 70%. A huge percentage don't really know what they want. And 30% do. And now, of course, in that 70%, you might have like one band member who has a good idea, like, I really, I really want my drums to sound like this. But I'm talking about overall, like the vision, 70% of my clients over the years just have very little vision about what their art is supposed to sound like. And to me, that's a big problem. And I'm always pushing artists to work harder about that, to think more about it, to get picky about their own stuff, to think about vibe and tones and to be thinking about it from the very beginning. You know, when you write a part, does this part fit the vibe or is it just cool? Does it? Does it make sense? Are we are we all chasing the same direction here? And one of the worst things is when you get a client in that each band member thinks, oh, well, I'm going to do my thing and he's going to do his thing and she's going to do her thing. And when we all combine, it's going to be super awesome and great. And it's like, I can't guarantee you that. Like it might, but it might also be just a total mess of sounds that don't make sense together. It's a really frustrating thing. So I totally thought when I first started that I would be more, I would not have to handhold as much, so to speak. I would not have to make so many decisions. I would not, I would be listening to the artist more and the artist would be telling me, I want this, I want this, I want this. And I would be having to achieve that. But unfortunately, a bigger part of my job has become me poking and prodding the artist. What do you want? What do you want? them trying to come up with an explanation and then me making all these decisions about how to get that. And I know I'm just kind of complaining and, you know, this is the moan zone right now, but my point is early on, I really thought that more artists would be super picky about their own stuff and would have more clearly defined ideas. And so many of them, they just don't think enough about it. And so I really believe now that um, it's part of my job to get artists to think about that stuff more because I think this ultimately leads to records sounding more generic and more bland because you're entrusting a producer who might work with hundreds of artists to make every decision about vibe and direction and space and dynamics and arrangement and all this. And it's like, man, this is so much more efficient and more creative if you let the artists themselves have a huge input in their sound. You'll get way more interesting ideas if you let five band members 
debate it out and try to come up with something than just one person consistently having to do this for different bands across different genres. Like so much weight is put on the production side. And I think artists need to take more responsibility. And so I encourage artists early on in the process, be listening to references, be thinking about your, your album and what you want it to sound like and why. How do you want people to feel when they listen to it? How do you want it to sound when it hits you? Do you have any records that make you feel like what you want your record to feel like? Like I really poke and prod artists to try to get them to think more about their art. And I just didn't think that was going to be a big part of my job, but it is. Number 30, home recordings can sound just as good as pro recordings. This is another one that I talk about a lot on the podcast. And I think so much of this is caught up in marketing for, you know, online mix courses and tutorials and ebooks and all this for people to be like, oh, you can get pro quality results at home. And again, in certain situations, absolutely you can. The technology has advanced so much and what we can do at home now is unbelievable. But that doesn't mean you can get everything at home. That doesn't mean that you can necessarily get the same drum sounds that were recorded at Blackbird in your bedroom. You just can't. Like, there are limits to physics. Like, there are things that can only be done in a large room to get that sound. And yeah, like, reverbs and stuff like that are getting better. But, again, there are limits. And I just wish that when people are starting out early on, like, I had this same idea in my mind when I first started that, like, oh, you can get pro results at home. Listen to all these people who say you can get pro results at home. Like all these guys on the forums say you can get amazing results at home, just as good as the pros. But so much of that, in my opinion, is just marketing hype. You can get great results at home. And depending on the genre that you're doing, depending on the types of things you're recording, you might be able to get 100% professional sounding results from home. But in other cases, for other instruments, for certain things, like if you need to track a live band in a big room, can you get that at home? Let's just be honest about it, right? Like, I'm not saying we should criticize people for home recording. I love recording at home, and I love all of my clients who have home recording setups, and I think it's such a useful tool. I like that home recording is a thing, but I think that people lie to themselves and think that the studio environment doesn't matter, that acoustics don't matter, that, you know, the the gear doesn't matter, that... None of it matters. The only thing that matters is a good song and that you hit record. And that's just wrong. It's just wrong. Again, you can get an interesting recording. You can get a good recording. But you can't fool yourself and think that every single thing is going to be possible in a bedroom. Um, like I said, the, anything that where the room sound is super important, drums, piano, strings, choir, orchestra, like... These things cannot really be done at home that well. Now, you could use virtual instruments, but I'm not really counting that. I'm talking about actually recording stuff at home. You can use drum samples, too, and you can get great results with that. I use drum samples, you know, like I've got a great sounding room, but it's not a huge room. It's got tall ceilings and it's got a good amount of decay, but it's not a concert hall. You know, and if I want some huge snare tone, like I might have to add a sample to help get it. We've got to stop lying to ourselves 
Uh, it's it, the same analogy I've given a dozen times about the whole like big name engineers and producers and mixers. Like they're using the same plugins that we're using. They're using the same monitors. They're using the same DAWs and the same converters and all this stuff has become so much more affordable. What's the biggest difference between their stuff and your stuff? Well, arguably one of the biggest differences aside from their experience is that those stuff is generally recorded in great studios by great engineers. You know, what's the difference between John's home studio and Blackbird? Probably the studio, you know, probably the multi-million dollar room that was designed by an expert. And if you haven't heard it yourself, if you haven't heard the difference, then please don't go on the forums and say that it, it doesn't make a difference. You can get amazing results at home. Now, if you're out there listening to me rant about this and you're saying, I disagree, I, I don't believe what he's saying and he's just bitter or whatever, uh, <laughs> I challenge you, record drums in a bedroom and then go to a professional studio and record the same drum kit and then tell me that it doesn't make a big difference. The room makes an absolute huge difference in the sound of certain instruments. Now, a bass direct sound, it doesn't matter where you record that. You could record that in the back of a pickup truck and plug in direct and it would be fine. Guitar amps or other amps that we mic really close, you know, like an inch away, like the room doesn't have a huge impact on that. I mean, sure, we couldn't really set up a room mic if you were recording it in a broom closet, but you could... If you were in a big studio, you could do a, a room mic 20 feet away. And a lot of times we like room mics on guitar sounds, you know, and, and I'm trying to stay fair about the limitations. But at the same time, it's like there are just certain things like strings and horns and pianos and drums and certain acoustic instruments that just sound better in a bigger room. I do believe you can record vocals almost anywhere, right? I've gotten vocal tracks recorded in bedrooms and bathrooms and closets and you know, if the room is decently treated and dampened, like it's not that hard to treat in the vocal frequency region, right? Which is mostly like 200 hertz and above. When you start getting into instruments that go really low and you start getting into instruments that need room sound to sound natural, right? Like a lot of times drums, a lot of times strings and horns and piano, that's when it gets really tricky. But if you're in a booth like a, you converted a walk-in closet to a vocal booth and you've treated decently well in there, you can get a great vocal sound, a great vocal sound in there. I just think we all need to be honest about what is possible and we need to recognize that there are limits to what can be done at home. And maybe you can go to a big studio and record drums and then record everything else at home. Okay, like I, a huge part of my business, of my annual income is people renting out my room to record guitars and drums because I've got a lot of great amps. I've got a great sounding room. I've got a lot of drums, a lot of snares, a lot of cymbals and a great sounding room for drums. And that's totally fine to me. Those people, in my opinion, are being honest about what is possible at home because they'll record guitars, they'll record uh, bass, they'll record vocals, they'll record percussion and all this stuff in their bedroom, but come here to do drums. And I think they're just being realistic, right? They're try they try to record drums at home and they realize, huh, this does not sound good. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and they try to use samples, and it's like, well, now it just sounds really phony. So I, I just wish that the lie would not be perpetuated to young engineers and that we could just have an honest conversation about this stuff and just say, you know, hey, if you really want to try to get great, big, you know, drum sounds, you probably can't do that at home very well. Now, if you want to get really tight, dead, kind of plunky drum sounds, say like Wolfpack or something that's really tight and simple and, and direct, you can probably do that at home just fine. Wolfpack records a lot in home studios, and it sounds fine. So I, we just need to have a more honest conversation about this and stop telling young engineers that anything is possible. I know that sounds negative, but it's not. I'm really just trying to be honest because I would have saved so much annoyance and frustration as a young engineer if someone had just told me, go to a real studio and record drums. Like, notice how much of a difference it makes. Go to a studio and record a, a, a live band with a good engineer, with good gear, and then compare that to what you do at home and tell me that, it, that there's no difference because you probably can't. You know what I mean? There's a huge difference. And I just wish someone had just given me tough love about that early on rather than tricking me into thinking, oh, well, you can make amazing sounding results at home and you don't need to ever have a big studio. You don't need to invest in all this gear. You don't need to invest in acoustics. You don't need to invest in a good drum set or learning how to tune drums or good cymbals or high ceilings in a live room. You know, I wish someone had just told me. You do sometimes, you know, <laughs> like for certain things, that's what it's going to take. The last one on this list is that this job is going to be easy and fun. <laughs> I know I don't want this episode to seem like a downer. I know some of these seemed like, like I said, like the moan zone where I'm just sitting here just complaining. But in reality, so many of these are geared towards, I wish someone had told me this when I started. I wish someone had told me you know, that the internet marketing or the what they tell you in the books or what they tell you in recording school is not always true. That they, they gloss over a lot of things and they don't give you tough love and they don't give you a blunt, true answer. I don't like that. And I don't want that for any of you. I'm trying to share my experience from doing this full time as an engineer and just be blunt with you about the true nature of things. Now, of course, I'm one man. I have my opinion you're free to disagree with anything that I've said here. Like I said, these are things that I used to believe, and now I do not. That implies that one day I could change my mind about them, and I might. But one of the biggest parts of this is that, I, you know, I, I've always disliked that whole phrase, like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Because I love recording, and I work really hard. And... I used to think that like my dream job, like I would love it and every day would be great and I'd be doing my, I'd be living my dream and I'd be working with cool bands and I got to tell you that like a lot of the job is very detailed, grueling, difficult, time-consuming work. It costs me a lot of time with other people. I, I have a huge opportunity cost where I... I don't get to spend as much time with my wife because I work long hours. I don't get to spend as much time with friends. I'm really tired at the end of the day and I don't want to go to shows because I've been listening to music all day. You know, there are costs to it. Like there are real deal costs. And especially running as a sole proprietor, I'm responsible for so much 
in my business and I'm responsible for the money side of things and marketing and paying my bills and doing good work and trying to be creative at the same time. And, you know, it can be a very soul sucking experience sometimes, you know, like there have been phases in my life where I don't even want to listen to music. You know, I just, I, I don't even want to think about it unless I'm sitting in the chair and I'm working with my clients and, you know, it, it can be very, it can take a toll on a person. You know what I mean? Like it can, it can kind of make you dislike music sometimes. I'm just being honest about that. And again, I don't want to give younger engineers or up-and-coming people this idea that the job is just easy and fun, and it's not always easy and fun. A lot of times it's very hard, and a lot of times it's not fun. The best we can do is try to improve our skills all the time and get better so that the job becomes easier. And say no to projects that we don't like so that we don't put ourselves in these soul-sucking situations. And say no to working 80-hour weeks. Like, invest in yourself a little bit. Invest in your mental health and your physical health. Invest in your well-being. Say no to, you know, not getting sleep and to ignoring your friends and having a life. You ask any engineer who's been doing it a long time and they'll tell you, like, work-life balance is incredibly hard with this job. It's, it's just an entirely different world. It's not like a... You wake up and you go to work, you clock in and clock out and come home and it's over. It's like an obsession that sticks with you. And I don't know, it's just hard to describe, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a weird little world. So I, I think we shouldn't be telling young engineers like this whole idea of like, if you love audio, then you'll never work a day in your life. I think a more honest thing would be if you love audio, be prepared to work really, really hard. And you're going to have fun. You're going to have some really fulfilling moments. You're going to have some really amazing experiences. And eventually, as you get better clients and you get better repertoire, you'll have better reputation. You're going to be working with some incredible musicians that will really inspire you and make you love music. But the job is not always that way. It, it is hard. It's time-consuming. There's so much to learn, so much to know. Musicians don't have a lot of money, so you're not going to make a lot of money. There are a lot of downsides and there are a lot of frustrating things. That's part of the reason why, you know, I started this podcast is to help people with those frustrating things, to help people talk about them and understand them and really try to get in people's minds and say, like, this is why. Focus on why something is the way that it is. Because if you can figure out why, if you can really master something at the core, not just, you know, memorize concepts or like learn something on the surface. Like if you can really understand why, you can kind of internalize it better and use it to your advantage. And that's kind of the point of these whole lists as well. Like I want to share my experience with these things and hopefully help some of you avoid some of these annoyances that, I, that I've shared and some of these misconceptions that can really be confusing and frustrating and you know, and not legitimately, you know, like some of these things, like I said, had, had I known when I was younger, I would have been able to kind of like mentally prepare myself for some of them. I would have been able to learn faster. I would have been able to get over these hurdles that really prevented me from understanding other concepts, right? And it would have made me realize wow, I thought the job was this and that this was this way. But in reality, I need to get better at these things because 
these are the realities of what clients need now. The music industry has changed. Music has changed. And you have to kind of be looking outward and inward simultaneously. So anyway, my whole point in bringing up this one is I want people to be honest about this job and I want people to work hard. You know, I want people to make great music and care about it and not just do it because it's cool or because, you know, they think this is a fun career path. You know, I have a lot of students in my class and a lot of them just don't cut the mustard because they they just think it's all fun and games. They don't know how to work with people. They don't know how to compromise. They don't know how to use money. They don't know how to, you know what I mean? And I've had interns that I've gotten rid of because they, they didn't want to work hard. Like, I just want people to take the job seriously. You know, I'm, I'm very much a purist when it comes to the job. Like, I think that so many people don't take audio engineering seriously and they don't even think of it as like a real job. And I think that we're devaluing ourselves by doing that. I think that we're devaluing music by not caring a lot. You know, we're making music sound worse if we don't care. And I, it's kind of goes back to the same thing with artists. Like artists should care a lot and we should care a lot about what we do because it matters and it's important. And, you know, music is a life-changing thing for so many people. And like, we really do need to take pride in our work. And I know most of us do. I know most people listening out there, you're, you're at the end of this episode because you care, because you really want to get better and you want to do right by your clients and you want to be successful and you want to have a good business and you want to do all these things. And that's great. And I commend you for that. But so many people look for quick fixes and shortcuts and all this. And it's, it's just not how the real job is. You know, it's just not like you got to put in the work. You got to do the work. You got to research and learn and try and experiment and you will get better. I promise you will get better, but you've just, you got to put in the time and it's a lot of work. So be prepared. I hope you have learned a lot from these episodes. It was a lot of work. It was hard kind of looking inward and being tough on real issues about, you know, some of these things. It was tough confronting some of my past beliefs and thinking like, man, I can't believe I used to do that. Or I can't believe I used to be so strict on this and think this is the only way and all this. And, you know, over time you grow and you try to be better. You try to learn more. We're always trying to learn, right? That's what the recording lounge is all about. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope to hear from you. If you want to send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com, I can answer questions or, you know, we can talk about show suggestions. If you have ideas for future episodes, topics, I'm always looking for those. So please send them my way. Special thanks to all my Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can head over to recordingloungepodcast.com and go to the support RL tab to learn about Patreon and the PayPal donations. Um, for some people in certain countries, it's a little harder for PayPal or for Patreon, depending. So uh, there's two options there. Uh, One-time donations or monthly donations are both amazing things from PayPal and Patreon. So I greatly appreciate all the people who support the podcast. You're really helping keeping this podcast alive. And as always, I will talk to you next time. Have a good week.